Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good Bishop. How's your Lent going, Bishop? It's going pretty well. It's uh, a really great season, sometimes challenging to uh, resist the temptations of not doing, fulfilling my Lenten resolutions, which uh-huh. I'll keep private, but uh, <laughs> but I'm trying. <laughs> All right. Uh, do you have a, a prayer for us? To start off with? Yeah, you know, I thought in this Lenten season, um, the Anima Christi is such a beautiful prayer to, to for us to pray, and I thought it would be appropriate, especially during Lent. All right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Soul of Christ, be my sanctification. Body of Christ, be my salvation. Blood of Christ, fill all my veins. Water of Christ's side, wash out my stains. Passion of Christ, my comfort be. O good Jesus, listen to me. In thy wounds I fain would hide, ne'er to be parted from thy side. Guard me, should the foe assail me. Call me when my life shall fail me. Bid me come to thee above, with thy saints to sing thy love, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop continues breaking down readings from the Easter Vigil Mass. This time, it's from Genesis and God's command to Abraham that he sacrifice his son, Isaac. Then it's on to listener-submitted questions, including one on what distinguishes humans from animals. If you have a question for Bishop to answer, you can submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, or send a text to the Holy Cross College text line, 260-436-9598. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit, member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we've been taking this Lent as an opportunity to look ahead at the Easter Vigil readings, and specifically, we've been going through these Old Testament readings that uh, there's uh, a bunch of them. Seven. Seven. And so, last week, we talked about the creation story. Yes. And so, the the second reading at the Easter Vigil comes from Genesis 22, which... Uh, I feel like this is one of those uh, kind of scary passages for parents. Like, wow, this is quite the expectations that God has for us sometimes. Yeah. And you know how the church has chosen these seven passages of all the passages of the Old Testament is really interesting. And uh, in some of the readings, like the last uh, episode, or I think it was 
the last episode where we talked about the creation yeah. story, the first reading. You know, there's a short and a long form. And, you know, because the Easter vigil can be so lengthy, the priest might choose the short version, which mm -hmm. he's allowed to do. At the same time, you lose something in the short version, you sure. know. And it's same with uh, the second reading of the Easter vigil from Genesis chapter 22. There's a short or a, a long version, but uh, we miss a lot with the shorter version. So I was wondering if you could read the longer version rather than the shorter version, so, because there's so much in there. Okay, sure. A reading from the book of Genesis. God put Abraham to the test. He called to him, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son Isaac, your only one, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. There you shall offer him up as a holocaust on a height that I will point out to you. Early the next morning, Abraham saddled his donkey, took with him his son Isaac and two of his servants as well, and with the wood that he had cut for the holocaust, set out for the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham got sight of the place from afar. Then he said to his servants, Both of you stay here with the donkey while the boy and I go over yonder. We will worship and then come back to you. Thereupon, Abraham took the wood for the holocaust and laid it on his son Isaac's shoulders, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two walked on together, Isaac spoke to his father Abraham. Father, Isaac said. Yes, son, he replied. Isaac continued, Here are the fire and the wood, but where is the sheep for the holocaust? Son, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the sheep for the holocaust. Then the two continued going forward. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. Next, he tied up his son Isaac and put him on top of the wood on the altar. Then he reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the Lord's messenger called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Do not lay your hand on the boy, said the messenger. Do not do the least thing to him. I know now how devoted you are to God, since you did not withhold from me your own beloved son. As Abraham looked about, he spied a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. So he went and took the ram and offered it up as a holocaust in place of his son. Abraham named the site Yahweh Yireh, Hence, people now say, on the mountain, the Lord will see. Again, the Lord's messenger called to Abraham from heaven and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you acted as you did in not withholding from me your beloved son, I will bless you abundantly and make your descendants as countless as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. Your descendants shall take possession of the gates of their enemies. And in your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall find blessing. All this because you obeyed my command. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is um, one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. Uh, we're all familiar with it. We'll often refer to this text as the sacrifice of Isaac. But actually, Isaac is not slain. Right. Um, in the Jewish tradition, they, they refer to it as the Agedah, 
which means the binding of huh. Isaac, because in fact he was bound but mm -hmm. not slain. This is really a heart-rending story, a, a drama, how God tests Abraham by commanding him to take Isaac, his only son, and offer him as a burnt offering. The church calls Abraham our father in faith, and he had this tremendous trust in God, and he faced the most difficult test imaginable on Mount Moriah when he was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. And notice that God said to Abraham to take his son Isaac, whom he loved, mm -hmm. to the land of Moriah and to offer him up as a holocaust. Isaac was Abraham's beloved son. He was the one through whom God's promise to Abraham of many descendants would be fulfilled. So the divine command to sacrifice Isaac surely made no sense to Abraham. You know, it seemed cruel. Right. And then how could the promise be fulfilled if Isaac died? But nevertheless, Abraham trusted in God. He obeyed. This was a test of Abraham's faith. And, um, of course, the angel of the Lord stayed Abraham's hand and did not allow Isaac to be killed. God didn't want Isaac's death. God doesn't want death. He, he wants life. So God never actually intended for Isaac to be put to death. You notice, back to that idea of the command to sacrifice his only beloved son. It's interesting when we think about that, the one and only son of Abraham, the son whom you loved, kind of reminds us of Jesus, mm -hmm. the only begotten son of God, the beloved with whom God is well pleased, as we read in the baptism of Jesus. Clearly, this is a foreshadowing, what we call a type of Jesus, a foreshadowing of Christ and the cross. Mm -hmm. When we read the fathers of the church, they have beautiful reflections on this. There's so many parallels between this sacrifice of Isaac and the sacrifice of Jesus. And I think that's one of the reasons that this is in the Easter vigil readings. Mm -hmm. It's really like a pre-enactment of, of the passion of Christ. God doesn't want death, but life. And the true sacrifice brings life, not death. So the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross brought life and redemption to all of us, to the whole human race. We're reminded of St. Paul's writing that God did not spare his own son, but handed him over for us all. So notice that in Genesis, Isaac's life was saved and a ram was offered up as a holocaust in place of Isaac. Isaac's life was redeemed by the death of the ram, the sacrifice of this ram. The ram took the place of Isaac. Mm -hmm. Foreshadows Jesus, the lamb of God, the lamb who was slain. You know, Isaac saw the ram in the thicket that was caught there. Well, Jesus is the lamb caught in the thicket of human history who let himself be bound and killed. So as the ram took the place of Jesus, 
I mean, as the ram took the place of Isaac, Jesus took our place. He let himself be bound and offered in sacrifice, and that's how he achieved our redemption. The Son of God became the Lamb of Sacrifice so that we might not die but live. Mm -hmm. On a mountain, Moriah, Isaac was saved. On Mount Calvary, the world is saved hmm. by the blood of the Lamb. You know, looking more specifically, it's really interesting, I think, to see these parallels between Genesis 22 and the accounts of Jesus in the Gospels. Let me just point out some. I already mentioned, you know, how it says in Genesis that Abraham offers his only begotten son as a sacrifice, his beloved son. And of course, when we look at the sacrifice of Christ, it's God the Father who offers his only begotten son, his, his beloved son as a sacrifice. Another parallel, very interesting, Isaac you notice in the story, it's a little detail, but I think it's significant. Isaac carries the wood right. of his sacrifice up the mountain. Yeah. Uh, of course, Jesus carries the wood of his cross up the mountain, Calvary. Mm -hmm. And when Isaac spoke to Abraham, what did he call him? He said, my father. And that was at that point of his being sacrificed. And Jesus prays in the face of his sacrifice, Abba, Father. Abraham declares in, in the passage you read that God will provide himself the lamb for sacrifice. And of course, we read in John's gospel, Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Another interesting thing, Isaac willingly offers himself in sacrifice in obedience to his father. And then Jesus willingly offers himself in sacrifice, in obedience to the Father. Now, this gets to the idea, and I think we often neglect thinking about this part of it. We think of sometimes because of what we see in art, that Isaac is just a, a child, a boy. Well, not really. He's a young man. Mm -hmm. When you look at the Hebrew and, you know, a boy couldn't carry this heavy load of wood up the mountain. Right. So he's a young man. And at some point, he realized what his father was about to do. And he could have overpowered mm -hmm. his, I mean, what was Abraham? He was 99 when Isaac was born. So, but, but Isaac doesn't object. He, he doesn't make any effort to resist. He was willing yeah. and to offer himself in sacrifice. And of course, that's Jesus. You know, he was willingly offered himself in sacrifice. And of course, the, as I mentioned, another parallel, God provides a ram. But notice the ram was caught by his horns in a thicket. Well, God provides his son who was wearing a crown of thorns on his head. Huh. Think about that. Yeah. And, and then finally, you know, where did the sacrifice of Isaac take place? It took place on Mount Moriah. That's Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus' sacrifice took place. It was in Jerusalem. It's interesting when you think about that, and I've been, if anyone's been to Jerusalem and you've gone to the Western Wall where the temple was, this is significant. This, this location of, of Mount Moriah, we can see in the Old Testament that this is later identified as the site where King Solomon built the temple. So, you know, I was thinking of that when I visited the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, that, that that's the same place as the sacrifice of Isaac. 
it's significant. It's the mountain is the place where there would be the the future covenant blessing, the Temple Mount. We could call it the Calvary of the Old Testament. And I think it's it's important to the last part of the reading, what happened after Abraham passed that test of faith. God makes an oath. That's how a covenant's established, by an oath. Mm-hmm. This is really important because God makes an oath as a response to Abraham's faith and Abraham's obedience. We, you just, As you just read, what does God say after that? He says, I swear by myself that because you acted as you did in not withholding from me your beloved son, I will bless you abundantly and make your descendants as countless as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. Your descendants shall take possession of the gates of their enemies. And in your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall find blessing. All this because you obeyed my command. Hmm. So I think that aspect of the promise that God had, had made to Abraham way back, now we see that promise even being elevated, that there's this final promise of universal blessing, this covenant, all the nations of the earth shall find blessing. Mm -hmm. And of course, that actually became realized in the new covenant in Jesus. Hmm. So there's a lot there. Um, What's so hard in preaching a homily at an Easter (laughs) vigil? I mean, we have all these readings, like like I could do a whole homily just on that reading at the Easter vigil. So to have these seven Old Testament readings and try to make, and then we have a a reading from St. Paul and then we have the gospel. You know, like I'm always, I looked at, when I start preparing a homily for the Easter vigil, I'm like, this mass is already going to be over two hours. And I look at the readings, I say, well, should I focus on this one or that one? Or, you know, it's it's challenging. Yeah. Coming up, we're going to look at a listener submitted question about man versus animals right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and I'll be asking the questions that you've submitted for Bishop to answer. We'll see how many we get to today, but we've got a really good one. This is an interesting question. Somebody writes, I work with a man who professes to be a devout Catholic. I am not Catholic, but have a great love of the Catholic teaching and am considering converting. I consider myself to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The man I work with insists that humans are animals. Because they are animals, they are oriented to procreation, which leads itself to sexual sin. Therefore, they must use their intellects to keep from sinning. I asked him about the transformation that takes place when one confesses their sin and asks Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. He said they are still animals. I asked him where in the Bible did he find that. He retorted that he didn't consider what the Bible says. This has really upset me. I believe Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and because of that, I have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yes, there are fleshly desires, but as I turn to the Holy Spirit for strength, I can overcome the temptation. As well, it says in Genesis that God made the animals lower than man. Please, if you could help me, I would appreciate it. Not necessarily to engage in any argument with this man, but so I could rest in the truth. Wow, you know... 
this just brings up so many questions. Um, you know, actually, I love this kind of question because as we've talked about on this program before, it gets to the whole idea of human origins. Mm -hmm. And we look at the animals and humans. When I heard that question, I, I immediately thought of St. Thomas Aquinas because St. Thomas said man is a rational animal. Mm -hmm. So, but then it gets into science and this whole um, science faith relationship. And it's something I love uh -huh. to look at. As a matter of fact, I think I've mentioned, I encourage our four Catholic high schools to have courses on faith and science mm -hmm. or to incorporate some of these questions in our theology classes or in science classes. As a matter of fact, Notre Dame has this great summer program that I encourage our science teachers and our theology teachers to attend. Have you had Dr. Chris Baglow on this program or on, on your program? I don't, I don't think so. You know, that would be great because he's at Notre Dame at the McGrath Institute for Church Life, but he has a second edition of his book. It's a high school theology text that is really fantastic. And it's called Faith, Science, and Reason. Okay. Faith, Science, and Reason. And it's published by the Midwest Theological Forum. Theology on the Cutting Edge is the subtitle. Uh -huh. And then there's another book that I also recommend called Particles of Faith mm -hmm. by Dr. Stacy Trasankos. Yeah. A Catholic Guide to Navigating Science. I know I'm getting a little off the topic here, but because I think a lot of listeners probably have similar questions. First of all, yeah, humans are animals. When you look at science and you look at the taxonomy of mm -hmm. living things, many of us learned this in high school. Maybe now they teach it in grade school. I don't know. But the, back in the 18th century, there was a Swedish botanist named Carl Linnaeus who devised the system. So we have this hierarchy where, you know, you have how living organisms evolved and the various characteristics. So we have, for example, the animal kingdom mm -hmm. and humans are always included in the animal kingdom right of course we're not plants we're not minerals right we're, we're not yeah, yeah exactly now that doesn't mean we're just advanced apes right you know humans are set apart from animals animals and humans we both have life we have the breath of life mm -hmm. from god but human life there's something unique now here we get into the relationship between science and and faith. We read in the book of Genesis that human life is breathed directly from God. So we are animals with a life more like God. We're created in his image. Mm -hmm. When you read that first chapter book of Genesis and the story of creation and, you know, after each day it says what God created was good. Mm -hmm. But what does he say after the uh, creation of man? He was very good. Right. I mean, there's so much right. in that chapter. So we're created in God's image and likeness, according to Genesis. Mm -hmm. How is this? We have souls mm -hmm. that did not emerge from matter. We're spiritual souls directly created by God and not merely the result of a biological process. There are two principles that make up a human being body and soul, matter and the soul. What's the soul? Well, we have 
the Fifth Lateran Council way back, back centuries ago said the human soul is the substantial form of the human body. No part of us is simply a soul and no part of us is simply a body. Hmm. Now, from one perspective, you look at human beings. Yeah, we're the natural product of evolution, primate evolution. From another perspective, every human being is a rational and spiritual being. We're body and soul. And God doesn't create the human soul separately from the body. The soul is the very life principle of the living body. So, after millions of years of evolution, according to the God-given laws of the universe and the activity of creatures, we now have a material creature, man, who is also spiritual. Hmm. One who's able to be immediately in relation to God, God's special creation in his image. Unlike other animals, humans can know and relate to their creator. Hmm. As I said, St. Thomas Aquinas taught that man is a rational animal. An animal that has the capacity of reason and free will. Do this, other animals have that? No. Okay. This is what makes our species, you know, Homo sapiens, different from all other species that are alive today. Now, when you look at the process of evolution, there were once other species similar to Homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. You know, we can call them our relatives, okay. <laughs> relatives of our species. Uh -huh. And I think I talked about homonyms before on this show. Right. And remember, I was talking about taxonomy, okay? We're part of the animal kingdom, but as you go through the process of evolution, you have these different categories. So, for example, you, you go from kingdom, the next uh, level would be a phylum, then class, then order, then family, then genus, then species. Okay. So, you look at the taxonomy system. It's based on evolution. This group of homonyms... These were similar to Homo sapiens. They're kind of our relatives. And when you look at the study of fossils, you know, I find it interesting. <laughs> Paleoanthropology uh -huh. is, is the science. Paleoanthropology deals with fossils of hominins. Huh. So these hominins or hominid, hominids, you see both in science books. We have this, this genus before you get to the species. The genus is Homo translated okay. as man homo so for example 2.4 to 1.4 million years ago there was homo habilis hmm. okay then there was about 1.9 to million years ago to 143,000 years ago the species of homo erectus there are others, you know, that we have been discovered around the world, especially in Africa and even Europe. There's Homo heidelbergensis, which was 700,000 to 200,000 years ago. I think more people are probably familiar with Homo neanderthalensis, hmm. Neanderthal man. Uh -huh. Neanderthals lived 200,000 to 40,000 years ago. This is our human tree of life. It included all these 
cousins, all these evolutionary cousins. Now, besides the fossils, the well, with the fossils, the evidence is in the DNA. Hmm. Okay. Now, someone say, well, what about, does that mean like chimpanzees and humans? You know, are we the same? Well, we have a common ancestor, but there was a divergence between the lineage of humans and chimpanzees five to seven million years ago. Hmm. But when we look at Homo sapiens, getting back to our faith, it's the ultimate reason why the universe exists. This was the point of God's creative activity, a creature that could receive the gift of divine life. Hmm. So the Homo sapiens species, we know from the science that we have, by the way, there's a lot of things we don't know. Science is still making new discoveries, et cetera. There's some differences in, in uh, scientific opinions. But when you look at Neanderthals, for example, just like humans, as far as we know, they, they moved out of Africa, okay? The Neanderthals settled in Europe and Central Asia. Of course, humans eventually settled in the whole world. The Neanderthals went extinct about 39,000, 40,000 years ago. Hmm. So now the only surviving homonym species is Homo sapiens, humans. You might say, well, where did the Homo sapiens, when did they arise? Well, probably between 120,000 and 70,000 years ago. Hmm. That's what science shows us. Um, you know, it's not possible to draw a straight line between any hominin species and our own species because the fossil record is still too fragmentary to conclude which hominin species is our direct ancestor. Okay. So there's kind of a missing link. Right. Um, but, you know, so you look at this, this evolution, you can compare our living primate relatives like the chimpanzees. Okay. They're still alive and hominins. Uh, there are some shared traits and behaviors, <laughs> All homonyms, though, have straight legs, capable of walking upright or on two feet, you know, bipedalism. Uh -huh. um, these homonyms climbed. Look at that species of Homo habilis. They made tools. They had manual dexterity. So you have larger brains. You know, so it's very interesting to to study all this. And then their diet, we know, was omnivorous. Okay, they ate meat. Mm -hmm. as well as plants. So these are some of our ancestors. And then you have the Homo erectus, which you see some behaviors where they would care for their own. And so there's these later homonyms that would even rely on other members of their group. So the complexity of the brain increased. Huh. They would d build dwelling places and even cooking and more advanced in, in making tools. The most ad advanced, I think, of all these different uh, cousins were the Neanderthals. And, and we know there was inbreeding of our ancestors with Neanderthals hmm. between 60,000 and 40,000 years ago. This is seen in DNA. Um, the Neanderthals, by the way, were the first homonyms to intentionally bury their dead. They also, we see on uh, that they in the caves where they lived, they had geometric designs and markings, um, things like that. So, 
it gets back to the question. This is all very interesting. I'm not an expert, but I, I find it fascinating. But then it gets to that big question. What sets humans apart? Mm -hmm. You know, as I said, reason, freedom. Mm -hmm. A lot of scientists will talk about symbolic thought. We can organize the world around us mentally by symbols, a vast array of mental, verbal, and physical symbols. And the height of sim symbolism is human language. And the word for symbol, it comes from the Greek symboline, means to put together, to put together. This distinguishes us from animals. Huh. Okay, we have reason, not just intelligence. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's a difference. Reason. We can reflect on ourselves, self-reflection. This is the human difference. It's more than animal intelligence. It's not just that we have more brain power. We have the power of reasoning. Uh -huh. uh, Non-human animals, they can make judgments. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, 800 years ago said animals can make judgments, natural judgment, he called it. But we humans can make judgments about our judgments. Okay? Right. That's human reason. This is human uniqueness. And, and when did this ha arise? Between 60,000 and 120,000 years ago. And we see then new behaviors. Cave paintings, different than the Neanderthals which were just these geometric things, sculptures. So we see things that demonstrate self-consciousness, that demonstrate self-determination, and therefore freedom, an understanding of time, rules of language. So there was this great leap forward, this beginning of the symbolic human way of life, when you think about our original Homo sapiens ancestors in Africa, now they moved to Europe about 60,000 years ago, in Australia about 50,000 years ago. They had this, this what we can call the human difference, not just self-awareness, but self-reflection. Mm -hmm. They could appreciate beauty. Human reason, this is the first foundation of imaging God, being an image of God, and this capacity to know truth, this free will. Well, God is love. We image the God who is love. We have freedom. We have the ability to act or not act on the basis of reason. We are moral beings. We can love as God loves. We can love selflessly. And we have this capacity for truth and goodness for love now that was wounded by sin mm -hmm. uh, that's a whole nother um, episode but um one of my favorite quotes about this whole thing is by c.s lewis I, and it's in dr baglow's book faith science and reason c.s lewis wrote a one of his his books is called the problem of pain mm -hmm. uh, i don't know if you've heard of that it's a real beautiful summary i think of how faith and science combine. So we have this, this vision 
that comes from faith in science. And, and this is what uh, C.S. Lewis wrote. It's a kind of a long quote, but it's really beautiful, I think. For long centuries, God perfected the animal form, which was to become the vehicle of humanity and the image of himself. He gave it hands whose thumb could be applied to each of the fingers and jaws and teeth and throat capable of articulation and a brain sufficiently complex to execute all of the material motions whereby rational thought is incarnated. The creature may have existed in this state for ages before it became man. It may even have been clever enough to make things which a modern archaeologist would accept as proof of its humanity. But it was only an animal because all its physical and psychical processes were directed to purely material and natural ends. Then, in the fullness of time, God caused to descend upon this organism, both on its psychology and physiology, a new kind of consciousness which could say, I and me, which could look upon itself as an object, which knew God, which could make judgments of truth, beauty, and goodness, and which was so far above time that it could perceive time flowing past. So, I don't know, I think that's just a, a great uh, summary of the picture that faith and science combine to give us of the dawn of humanity. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a great answer to that question. And if you have any <laughs> questions for Bishop, you can ask by going to redeemerradio.com slash ask Bishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And coming up, if we have time, we'll have some of your questions, including what do we believe about non-Catholic martyrs, fasting before and after communion, and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, asking the questions that you've submitted for Bishop to answer. One of our listeners asked, what does the church teach about Christians who are killed for their faith in Christ, but who were not Catholic? Do we presume they are in heaven? Is it possible for them to be canonized? Yeah, you know, um, that's a good question. Um, reminds me of Pope Francis, um, maybe about seven years ago, talked about uh, an ecumenism of blood, hmm. where we have Lutherans and Anglicans and Orthodox and Catholics, etc., he, he spoke about how our blood is mixed, the blood of those martyrs. I love that idea of a, an ecumenism of blood. And we still see that today, um, where Christians, Catholics, and other Christians are, are killed. If they're non-Catholic, uh, no, we do not have a beatification or canonization process. Do we presume they're in heaven? You know, that's an interesting question, too. Just because someone is killed and they're Christians, 
doesn't mean that they're going to heaven. I mean, if they give their life for Christ in the sense that they are consciously offering their lives for Jesus, yeah, I mean, that's, I think, the heavenly reward. Mm -hmm. But if it's just incidentally that they were killed and maybe they, I mean, you could have, for example, a, a Christian who denies his faith, but is still killed because he or she's a Christian. Uh, so, you know, what's right. their destiny, you know? So I think you have to be a little careful there. I was so moved by the, uh, remember the, the brutal execution of the 21 Coptic Christians by ISIS. Mm -hmm. uh, it was so barbaric. But what, you know, their faith was such an inspiration. Do I believe they're in heaven? Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. um, they... I think we're, we're, we're truly martyrs, but they wouldn't deny their faith. But we do not, um, we do not have a process for canonizing mm -hmm. non-Catholic Christians. The, the church is probably very careful about definitively speaking on, right. on these issues. So. Right. Next up, why do we fast for an hour before receiving the Eucharist? And how long should we wait after receiving communion before we eat or drink? You know, I don't think there's any law about after receiving communion, although one should be sure that there's nothing of the host left in one's mouth. You mm -hmm. know, that's really important. So, you know, drink water, etc. But regarding before receiving the Eucharist and uh, fasting for an hour might be helpful for the listeners to know a little bit about how, you know, where did this tradition of fasting before receiving the Eucharist um, begin. Mm -hmm. It's really an ancient discipline. We see, even as early as the second century, this, this practice of fasting before Mass. I think maybe some of our older listeners might remember the midnight fast. That was in place until 1957, the year I was born. But uh, that meant that one could not eat before Mass, starting from the midnight before that's why so many people went to early morning masses <laughs> you know mm -hmm. uh it was extremely rare to have mass in the evening uh and there were no vigil masses um you know but there were few people who wanted to fast all day long before attending mass so this this idea of fasting from midnight on now that was changed by pope pius the 12th in 1957 he shortened the uh the fast to three hours so you don't you couldn't eat three hours before mass hmm. or three hours before receiving communion i remember that uh, now that was shortened in 1964 to just one hour and that was pope paul the sixth so we went from the midnight fast to the three hour fast to the one hour fast and that one hour fast you know, we read it in canon law. Canon law says a person who is to receive the most holy Eucharist is to abstain for at least one hour before Holy Communion from any food and drink except for only water and medicine. Mm -hmm. And then there are some cases where those rules don't apply. And we read this in canon law also. By the way, this is canon 919, which says that the elderly, the infirm, and those who care for them can receive the most holy Eucharist, 
even if they have eaten something within the preceding hour. Okay. So maybe getting back to the, why do we even have this fast? Um, what's wrong if I eat a cheeseburger, you know, right before I go into church? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're talking here about the power of spiritual discipline. As I said, this goes back to the second century that there was this, uh, the importance of fasting, just in general, the idea of fasting as, as good spiritual discipline. You know, it builds up our spiritual strength. So the church asks us to complete this very simple task uh, every time we receive Holy Communion, to have this discipline. Um, we need to hunger for the Eucharist before we can properly receive it. Hmm. That's I'm talking about an inner hunger. But, you know, that's kind of what fasting indicates, you know, that we're a soul that is hungry for God. We shouldn't think of holy going, going to Holy Communion as just something ordinary that doesn't need any preparation beforehand. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously we need to be in the state of grace, but this is kind of an outward sign of, um, of spiritual preparation, I would say. All right. Well, great. Thank you so much for answering these questions and help us prepare for Easter and, and really dive into this Lent. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.